Hello there, this is your captain speaking. We've just started our final descent. It looks like it's going to be nice and smooth. The cabin crew are going to prepare the cabin and we should be on the ground in a short time. <sighs> nice and smooth. That is exactly what I want. I have spent the last week in England working non-stop and just a little nice and smooth is exactly what I need. In preparation for landing, please stow your tray tables and put your seats into an upright position. At this time, the use of all portable electronic devices is prohibited. Ah, it's so peaceful up here. We're shutting off our portable devices. We're not getting any news. Up here, everything is... Hey, Dan. Whoa, whoa Maureen, what, what? You're flying back from England, too? What are, what are you doing here? Dan, I, I just wanted to take this flight home with you so that I could bring you up to speed. You've been away for days now, Dan. I know. It's been... It's been really nice, honestly. I'm, I mean, I, I saw some of the news, but I was working so hard, and it just felt so far away. Well, you're going back now. This is it, Dan. This is the final stretch. This is what we've been waiting for. The final countdown. The lavatories are now out of use for the duration of the flight. Oof, that's bad timing. I really kind of need to pee. Um, all right, Maureen, what, what's going on? Well, for the first part of the week... Not that much was happening. Everything was pretty smooth. It seemed that way. I mean, I feel like I was getting just a little bit, kind of between like 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. when I couldn't sleep, but it just seemed like things were pretty calm. Yeah, I mean, for a few days. It felt like we were on the home stretch. The debates were over. People largely made up their minds. Early voting had started. Everything seemed to be coming to a... I hate turbulence. Yeah, uh, well, everything was just kind of leveling out when... Uh, we're having a bit of an issue. It's nothing to be alarmed about. Your cabin crew are just going to check to make sure the cabin is secure. I'll be on the ground in no time. Uh, thanks for flying with us. Was that turbulence? I don't know. It was an air pocket or something. This is when everything went kind of... At this time, we will require all passengers sitting next to a window on the right side of the plane to lower their window shades. If you are sitting on the left side of the plane, please do not look at the right side what? of the plane. I'm, I'm just, it's fine. It's fine. Just... Maureen, what do you think is going on on the right side of the plane? I just, I'm going to go look. No, no, the pilot asked us not to look. But, no, Dan, you need to let them do their jobs. If they say don't look at the right, don't look. So anyway, it turns out there were these emails, right? Maureen, like, what is going on on this plane? Look, I don't know. Landings are weird. That was another thing that happened this week. Mike Pence's plane skidded out of control when he landed in New York. That won't happen on this plane. This plane seems fine. This but plane it... does not seem fine. Okay, you know what? Just these emails. So they... what, what was that? I don't know. It's probably the landing gear or something. So there are these emails that everyone's talking about. No one knows what the hell they are, aside from... Emails. They're just some emails. They were found on another computer as part of a separate thing and may involve Anthony Weiner, but the, the thing is, no one's really... This is your captain speaking. Um, sorry to trouble you, but if anyone has a bag of saline solution and the necessary equipment to deliver fluids intravenously, please make yourselves known to the cabin crew. Have you on the ground shortly. Thanks for flying with us. Wait, Maureen, saline? That's... But, look, the flying dries you out. So anyway, about these emails, the point is, Dan, that they don't really know... What is about... happening up there, Maureen? Something is happening in first class. Look! This is your cabin crew speaking. First class is fine. Dan, first rule of the Titanic and everything else, first class is always fine. But... If you keep interrupting me, I'm never going to finish the story about these emails. Not that there's really any... Maureen, something is happening up there. Did you see it? Did you see it? See what? Oh, God. Oh, God. Did it come this way? Did you look out of the right side of the plane? What is happening? God, I hate sitting next to nervous flyers. Uh, this is your captain speaking on behalf of the airline. I just want to apologize for any inconveniences in our first class cabin this evening. Your families will be contacted and your duty free will be sent to your next of kin. See the rest of you on the ground shortly. Thank you for flying with us. Oh my god! We need to get off this plane. I'm going to find a way. Here, take my phone. If anything happens to me, call my wife. You can't get off a plane. Maybe you can't, but I have to try. Ugh, 
are. Dan, I need to I need to get you up to speed about these emails. The point is that everyone is freaking out over something, but no one knows what it is. It's like when my dog barks. Sometimes it's because someone's at the door, and sometimes it's because she saw a bag. And the reaction is exactly the same. And the point is that people are completely freaking out. Oh, I've got to get out. Get him. Th- there's this entire out. question of why this information or lack thereof was even released at this time, this particular time. And these other things regarding Trump possibly were held back. We don't know. Get him with the dinner cart and drag him back to first class. Ah! Maureen, these emails don't matter. Exactly. Listen, we will be landing. We're going to land this thing. We will be on the ground shortly. We will. What goes up must come down. First rule of planes. I'm turning off the cabin lights now. It's best you don't see this. I mean, you'll probably see it anyway, but it should lessen the impact a little. No. Sorry. Shouldn't have used that word. Oops. <laughs> and stop crying, Charles. Stop crying. I'm talking to the passengers. In any case, we'll be on the ground soon. Everything has to end sometime. Everything has to end sometime. That's true. It's true of this election. We may have to accept the fact that things may not wrap up neatly on November 9th, but, you know... Oh, my God, Maureen! I know, I know. I wish I could say otherwise. No, I mean... At this time, all passengers are requested to curl up into a tiny ball and try not to be seen. (sighs) It's got my leg! Cabin crew, thank you for your... Let go of the controls, Charles. Let go. It's too late. Thank you for your service. Please leave some bottles of whiskey by the flight deck and find a place to hide. I love you. I just want to sing something for you. It's a song by Adele that really captures how I feel. This is the end. Hold your breath and count. No, no, that's a bad um, When the sky falls and the crumble. No, 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 no. Let's do Freebird by Lynn and Skinner instead. You play air guitar, Charles. Air guitar. Get it? Charles, wake up and stop bleeding. Back in your seat! No! No! But this, this is the democratic process. It's playing out and we just have to... Oh, shit. Wait, did you see it this time? No, no, I forgot to fill out my landing card. Maureen, the wing just fell off and something is eating people in first class. Oh, do you have a pen? It's important to fill these things out correctly. Like when you vote. In New York, we have to fill in the little oval and pen. I'm always very careful to fill it in perfectly. You have to get it really nice and neat. Should have stayed in England. Should have stayed in England. It's not all roses there, Dan. Remember Brexit? Remember that vote? Look, relax. It'll be over soon. Says who? Welcome to Says Who, the podcast that isn't a podcast. It's a coping strategy. I'm Dan Sinker. And I'm Maureen John... Wait, hold on, wait, no. I'm I'm Dan Sinker, right? Yeah, I'm just messing with you. God, Maureen, don't do that. I spent the last week working a conference in London, and I never slept. Like, I don't mean like, oh, I went to England, and huh, jet lag, ha ha. I mean like... I would fall asleep at 4.30 a.m. every night, and I had to be up at 7. And so I am just sort of like have a raging headache, and I have a cold, and I actually had to go to the National Health Service in England, which actually turned out to be like fast and totally free and kind of amazing, and I don't understand why we've been off on nationalized healthcare all this time. But anyway, I don't know who... Or what I am right now, Maureen. I am smelling time, and I'm hearing colors, and I don't remember almost any of my flight home. And now we're recording a podcast about the final week of election, but I am just, like, super confused. The last episode! The last episode, Maureen, we were talking about how smooth things were going, and how it was going to just be okay. And then I get on a plane, and I fly across the Atlantic, and everything falls apart 
Like, what is this? I know that some emails exist and that the FBI knows about them and they somehow have to do with Anthony Weiner, which, like, fuck that guy. I'm not from New York. I never needed to know that guy existed. These emails could contain anything or they could contain nothing, but we aren't going to know until well after the election. So everyone is freaking out, but we don't even know why we're freaking out. Yeah. Yeah, some stuff happened. But, you know... It's sort of the election equivalent of, I think I heard a noise. Yeah, but last night I was finally going to go to sleep and I was going to go to sleep at 7.30 at night and it was going to be glorious. And at that moment, every news organization was like, you know what? We've got a whole bunch of Trump stories to drop. Let's drop them before Dan goes to sleep. Like the New York Times got a hold of some more taxes and Mother Jones had some unnamed spy saying that Trump is going to be blackmailed or is being blackmailed by Russia. And Slate wrote this super confusing story about a server that Trump has that is exclusively getting pings from a bank in Russia. And Maureen, honestly, if this election hinges on email routing and server configurations, that is way too close to my actual job for me to be okay with. I think that I am just going to spend the next five days rocking back and forth and back and forth, just waiting for even more bullshit to knock us into fire and chaos. Well, it's six days. I mean, depending on how no, you count it. No, I count it as five. Yeah, but you have jet lag and don't know what time it is. I have election lag, Maureen, and it is never, ever going away. Yeah, but Dan, this is this is our final, final pre-election podcast. Final pre-election podcast. We are in the final week. Did you ever think we'd make it here? I don't believe that it's the final week. We don't know when this is going to end. No one knows when this is going to end. Okay, yeah, but you know what I mean. That's the thing. Nothing means anything anymore, right? Our brains are so warped and so fatigued that it feels like reality itself is bent. You know, this whole entire process we base our society on is being challenged by some spray-tanned reality show con man and this team he has of certifiable idiots. And the election is on the 8th, Maureen, and if you thought about that, what happens when you take an 8 and you turn it on its side? You get infinity. Oh my god, I wish I'd never thought of that. Okay, let's... Take time, get Dan his blankie and some orange juice, and before we spin off into infinity, get to our guest. I'm seeing spots right now. Dan, just sit down and breathe into a bag. So this is it. This is the last six days of the election. It's kind of impossible to even say those words. Honestly, I am not going to believe it until I see it, and then probably I won't believe it either. For this last pre-election episode, we wanted to bring in someone that's not only been closely watching the election, but has been closely watching the media watching the election. Brian Stelter is the host of Reliable Sources, the Sunday morning media show on CNN and CNN senior media correspondent, where he's been tirelessly reporting on the role of the media in the election year. Prior to joining CNN, Brian was a media reporter for the New York Times and was the founder of the blog TV Newser. Brian has really emerged this election cycle as a calming, rational voice in the media landscape, one of a handful of folks that's reliably called liars what they are and seem truly determined to find truth and understanding amidst everything. So we're excited to have him with us for this particular episode. Brian, Ted Cruz, oops, I just did a Trump sniff. Brian, Ted Cruz announced his candidacy almost 600 days ago, marking the start of this election cycle. Looking back on all that time, could you have predicted any of this? <laughs> well, I didn't think that Donald Trump would enter the race. So uh, once I was wrong about that, I tried to back up and not make so many predictions. Uh, this was a prediction-defying election. And uh, looking back now, it's sort of obvious that this was going to happen, that we were going to have a Trump-Clinton race. But if we try to remember what it felt like in the summer and fall of 2015, it was anything but obvious. And... Uh, in many ways, journalists are grateful for that, right? There's nothing journalists love more than a good story. And this has been the ultimate story. For, for better or worse, depending on how you feel about it emotionally, it has been the ultimate story. 
I feel worse personally. That's just me. <laughs> but I'm glad that you guys have lots of work to do. I think um, you're clearly not alone feeling worse. This has been a, a such an emotional roller coaster for so many people, both on the Clinton and Trump side. Uh, the tribal feeling of this election does seem different than it did in, in, in 2008 or 2012 or past years. And frankly, I think that's why programs like this one have been really valuable to people. It, uh, I get the sense that uh, folks on both sides have needed sort of media therapy, uh, needed therapeutic sources, uh, ways to process what the heck is going on. And we've seen a lot of that emerge over the past year or so. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm curious about about all of that and kind of the the media's role in that. You know, I mean it is it's felt like at times this election isn't just kind of Trump versus Clinton, but instead like either one of them against the media, you know. And and so what kind of role do you feel like the media has really played in this election for for better or for worse? Well, I mean, the media is everything now. We should start by saying media includes my mom's Facebook page and it includes my Snapchat and all the rest of it. Uh, but thinking about the national media, the the press corps that has covered these campaigns, uh, what we've seen is um, uh, two very different kind of campaigns unfold. Donald Trump, a media-driven but also anti-media campaign versus Hillary Clinton, relatively normal campaign, what we would see Mitt Romney do in 2012 or Barack Obama do in 2008 or John Kerry do in 2004. She essentially ran the same kind of campaign with the same kind of hostility toward the media, the same kind of antagonistic relationships. Uh, Donald Trump's was so different. So I have a hard time even trying to address them in the same sentence because uh, what what we saw was such a a difference in the way the two campaigns uh, existed and thus how the two campaigns were covered. Yeah, I mean, I've heard, I've spoken to only a few Trump supporters, and they immediately started saying, well, you can't trust the media. And I was like, well, the media gave you that sentence. And then, you know, I started saying, well, what is the, you know, really, I know I'm asking a kind of media studies 101 question, but what is the media now? Like, what does that even mean when they say it? Is it, they are strictly talking about uh, just, is it, CNN or the New York? Is it just what, whatever they call that day? Is that the media? They're, they're talking about what they perceive to be an enemy. And if, if, we've, if we've learned one thing about the past year, it's that uh, Donald Trump and what he represents is a distrust of all institutions. Partly that's because he's encouraged it. He's tried to tear down institutions like the media, but partly because that resentment and hostility was already there, there for the taking. And it's something that I didn't recognize enough early on. Uh, you know, I think we all knew in the back of our minds that many Americans distrust the quote-unquote news media. Uh, but now we see it and feel it much more viscerally than we did a year ago, uh, whether that's the hostility at Trump's rallies, whether it's the nastiness on social media, whether it's, as Jay Rosen has described, the choice to really opt out of journalism as we know it. This is a choice that is, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I can't claim to have reached conclusions about it yet because we're still living it every day. But it's got real ramifications after the election, right? Because uh, most journalists are trying their best to tell the truth. And if there's a big, big portion of Americans who don't believe that, um, we've got a lot of work to do after the election. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's one of the things that's that's been most interesting to me this cycle is watching both that distrust of the media, and I think that's been a distrust that is, has, has run on both sides, you know, um, and yet the media is the, the folks that are, by and large, breaking the stories that are really impacting the election as well, you know, and, and doing the reporting that is helping us to, you know, understand all of the the various kind of twists and twists and turns on this. So I I think starting this line of questioning first is kind of looking at the various moments that have had impact this year especially in in reporting. You know, what do you think the the where have the the big kind of turning points been? What are the stories that you feel like have really impacted this 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 election? Hmm. Uh, going back to June 2015, and Donald Trump's comments about Mexicans, there wasn't an initial, there wasn't an initial reaction 
to his comments about some Mexican immigrants being rapists, being drug dealers. It took a little while for for a, a national focus on those offensive remarks. And it started in part because of Univision, Spanish language media, uh, channeling the outrage of its audience, taking a stand against Trump, saying it was not going to broadcast one of his pageants. NBC then followed, and there was a focus on his comments about immigrants. But there was a delay. It it, it didn't happen the hour after his uh, entrance into the race. It happened days later. And I look back now and I think about that as an example of uh, niche media or um, a very specific subset of media, in this case, Spanish language media, having an early effect on the race by having an early, creating an early framing of Donald Trump. You may disagree with that framing, but that's what happened in, in June and July of 2015. So that, that sense of the first story that stands out to me as uh, a, a um, significant uh, sort of narrative of the race. And we saw other reactions like that uh, later on in the year. You think about uh, Trump's call for a ban on immigra- of, of Muslims in the, coming into the U.S., and voices like Tom Brokaw stood up very loudly and said, essentially, this is un-American. The kind of journalistic response we almost never see during any presidential campaign. To me, I look back as, as, as a, that's another marker where we saw journalists stand up uh, and express uh, basic American values, which they felt were antithetical to what Trump was saying. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's an interesting... It does feel like there have been moments of shift within within the media you know i mean you've 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 you know the kind of the importance of of spanish language media in a in a larger kind of media context is certainly you know one that i think we're continuing to see unfold um and you know people like tom brokaw or others kind of standing up and saying hey you know what this is this is different you know i think that you know how many different news organizations in the last even just few months kind of issued statements saying that they were going to call lies lies, right? Um, what, what, I guess, what took so long? And also, um, do you think that this will, this will last beyond this election cycle? Well, we say what took so long, I, I would object a little bit and say that there were many journalists uh, covering Clinton and Trump aggressively very early on, you know, during the primaries. I would suggest that uh, Trump prevailed in the primaries in spite of the media more than because of the media. Y- yes, he received the most attention, the most television airtime, and that was a factor. But the bigger factor was that voters were responding to his message. And uh, if if the media failed in the primaries, I would say the media failed by by missing and dismissing Trump supporters and what was fueling Trump supporters early on. Now, there I go again. I hate doing that. I just painted with too broad a brush. I said the whole media. <laughs> it's never the whole media. And some news outlets did a better job than others calling lies out even early on during the primaries. Uh, but but I, so I would just add that caveat. You know, there, there were some there, there were some really aggressive probing stories even early on about Trump pointing out simple falsehoods that he was stating. But I, but clearly there was a more aggressive posture as the election went on uh, this year. Uh, most Probably in the last four to five months, we've seen a much more aggressive stance taken by more anchors, by more writers, by more journalists. Where does it come from? I think it comes from uh, the difference between a primary and a general, uh, the difference between an audience that is a smaller audience paying attention and a larger audience paying attention, and frankly, some more egregious lying by Donald Trump. Uh, it became easier over time to say that Trump lies more than Clinton because the record became larger and larger and larger. The, the pile of mis- misstatements became larger and larger and larger. And uh, and so, so that's what I think triggered that more aggressive posture later in the campaign. But I would just go back to the primaries and just say, you know, you look at the Huffington Post with that much mocked warning label on their stories. You look at um, some of the interviews of Trump, even when he would call into cable news shows, he wasn't getting all softballs. He might have been able to avoid the hardballs. He might have been able to, to uh, dodge them, but he wasn't getting all softballs early on. One thing we've asked all of our guests is it seems like all of the people that have had to cover this election, you've had a very kind of, you know, it has had a personal impact. You know, in particular, the women covering it have talked about online abuse about, you know, how how have you 
kind of felt about this election in terms of having to do your job? I recognize first that the abuse I experience is not nearly as severe as the abuse other reporters experience, particularly ones who are on the campaign trail, and particularly women and minorities. Uh, For example, I see some anti-Semitic tweets. I happen not to be Jewish, although I'm happy they think I am. Uh, My my wife is Jewish, so I I, I embrace that. Uh, It's interesting to me that, you know, I'm getting those kind of messages, that that kind of hate. and, you know, when our address was published online, that was a particularly sensitive moment for me to think about what would cause this kind of uh, hateful reaction from people. Some of it is just, of course, normal trolling. And then some of it is is darker than that. Uh, so in terms of w- what I've learned kind of beyond the abuse, uh, I think I'm trying to be more aware of the wide uh, viewpoints in the country, the viewpoints that were ignored by both the left and the right uh, before this election. Um, and that's why I go back to what I was saying about uh, the views of Trump supporters and how too many in the media missed and dismissed it early on. You know, um, you look at who's on television representing the Trump point of view and representing the Republican point of view. And, and you know, that's partly why CNN brought in pro-Trump contributors, right? Because even CNN's Republican conservative contributors were anti-Trump. There was this sentiment in the country that wasn't being reflected in news coverage, most news coverage. And uh, I hope we don't collectively fail to pay attention to it after the election. There's certainly been an awakening in the past year about the factors of economic anxiety and racial resentment and social anxiety, the social collapse of white working class communities. And I sure hope there continues to be a focus on that because that's, that's been something I've definitely had to, as a journalist, uh, factor in more, pay more attention to, become more aware of. There is some truth to that idea of uh, an Acela corridor bias or a Delta shuttle bias. There's yeah, understandable reasons for it. It's where newsrooms are based, D.C. and New York. A lot of journalists come from those parts of the country. But we've got to be aware of those factors and try to uh, better cover the whole of the country. And to me, that's been one of the big takeaways. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's, that has certainly always been true. You know, being based in Chicago, uh, you can you can see it a little a little more clearly that you know New York and and Washington often are are sort of you know unto themselves. Um, but I'm also curious about sort of that um, the instinct of okay, we need to bring in you know, more of these views or, or more of these supporters, certainly, you know, turning on even even your own channel, um, you know, sometimes it, it, it feels like you've got, you know, we now have this class of people that are essentially paid to say that whatever just happened in reality didn't happen. And here's why. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm well, that's the way you would frame it. I would say they are paid to <laughs> express the Trump supporter point of view, which represents right now 40 percent of the electorate. Well, I mean, but I mean, I wouldn't even say on the on the the Trump side, right? That we we have sort of a, a a group of people that kind of appear on TV representing either side, right? And but they are it often feels like they are just spinning, right? And what what's the use or 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 how is it useful to kind of have you know these types of folks on on either side of the fence that are, yeah. you know, just sort of so, so partisan and so clearly that they are not yeah. going to say anything but a series of kind of talking points and spin. It feels like watching Pong, like it just kind of goes <laughs> pong, back and forth. Isn't that a representation of where we are as a society, though? Don't we need <laughs> to see the debate happen on air? Don't we need to see what's happening in living rooms and in bars on TV? Well, but is it is it a debate when both sides are kind of pre, you know, predetermined, you know, where... Yeah, well, that's interesting. You know, one of the well, things... Well, right. It, it, it can become boring. It can become predictable. Uh, you know what they're going to say before they say it. Uh, you know, I, I like to picture a Venn diagram with good journalism on one side and good television on the other side. And when CNN's at its best and when I'm at my best and when media's at its best, we're in the middle. It's good TV and good journalism. And when you see anchors challenge surrogates on either side, when you see anchors challenge the candidates, that's in the middle of the Venn diagram. That's good journalism and good TV. You're seeing journalism happen as it happens live on TV. 
what we see as good TV but not good journalism is 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 what you're describing the the potential for these boring, predictable, uh, falsehood-filled cable news debates. And I would argue there's fewer of those than people might think, but they do happen. And uh, listen, I've had that same challenge on my hour on CNN as well. You, you bring on surrogates from both sides. You want to have a debate that reflects what's going on in the country, that reflects the real disagreements that happen. And then as the anchor in the middle, you're struggling to keep up with all the claims that are being made every second of the conversation. You try to step in as much as you can, but uh, it's a real challenge. And it was it was especially obvious this year. It's always been a challenge, but it was so much more visible this year. It feels like you would be hardly able to get into even five minutes of your coverage without going, okay, let's back up and break down everything that you just said. It just it seems <laughs> like the balls are coming at you very, very fast. Well, partly you have to predict what the guests are going to say. Uh, partly you need to focus on drilling down into, into a couple of key topics as opposed to trying to cover everything. You know, like the interviews that I feel best about from this year are the ones where I honed in on a couple of topics, spent several minutes on each topic, and didn't try to move on right away. Viewers, I think, love it when the anchor repeats the question, repeats it again for emphasis, and does not let the guest off the hook. Uh, you want to do that without being combative. You don't want to come across as hostile or biased. Uh, but I think the viewers, they want advocates. They want the anchors and hosts to be, and the reporters to be advocates. And uh, to me, the best programs on TV are when you have the talking heads, the commentators, but also reporters at the table to check those commentators. Uh, yeah, I mean... I, I think you need both. Yeah, I think that that's, that's an interesting thing to me, especially as someone that is is involved in journalism, is, you know, the kind of the anti-media feeling that is that is out there again on the on the on the right and the left yet it does feel like what people really do want is an advocate right is that a lot kind of, of rep- do. yeah you know that that it feels like i mean you mentioned earlier here you know how do we come back from this right and to me it feels like those moments where the 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 anchor or the reporter doesn't necessarily let go right or or revisits or says hey you know what you said this thing the other day instead of kind of just letting it letting it go those are actually moments where there is that kind of glimmer that moment of like wait this is i think you know you see people react and one of the things that's interesting and i think one of the things that that, that must be very interesting for you being on on the side is you see reaction in real time now right like you can tell like whoa people are are appreciating this or people are are really questioning this and kind of how do you how do you incorporate that type of speed into the way you you think and and approach this stuff well, i think we're, we're we're better off when we can hear more from the audience and certainly we've heard a lot from the audience this year um there can be downsides, obviously, and some of that is the abuse and hate we were talking about. Other downsides can be sort of focusing too much on the Twitter re- reaction as opposed to the larger audience. But uh, I think what what I hear from the audience this year is so much frustration. Uh, and the frustration comes from two, I would think, maybe two main places. There's a lot of frustration from people that only have, let's say, a, a a fifth or a fourth or a third of the truth. <laughs> they see a headline that misleads them. Uh, they're outraged by it. And they only know a quarter or a third of the truth. If they were to be told all the truth, the whole story, their outrage might come down a little bit. But uh, they're only hearing a part of the story. And that's because there's a lot of websites out there that are trying to mislead people. Right. A lot of partisan websites, mostly on the right, but also on the left. That are trying to mislead people. You know, BuzzFeed's wonderful study recently showing that hyper-partisan Facebook pages uh, are, are providing millions of people false information. And it found that about 38% of the posts on these crazy pages are false. Uh, th- 38% of these crazy posts on right-wing pages are false. 19% on left-wing pages are false. There's a problem on both sides, but the problem is worse on the right. The echo chamber is louder on the right. I thought that was a great study by BuzzFeed showing where people are getting this misinformation all the time. So I would say the frustration comes from kind of being misled. And then it comes from the lack of fact checking or the feeling like Donald Trump and his surrogates in particular are getting away with more falsehoods uh, versus Clinton. Um, No doubt Clinton shades the truth and she has done so on a number of issues. But Donald Trump has shaded the truth so many more times in such dramatic and hyperbolic and extreme ways. 
And for us to ignore that or pretend like that's not true does a disservice to the audience. Now, I, I do subscribe to that. You guys have probably talked about this on the podcast. The idea that uh, reporters take Donald Trump literally but not seriously and his mm-hmm. voters take Donald Trump seriously but not literally, right? That that they won't hold him to his exact claim about thousands of Muslims cheering in New Jersey on 9-11. Journalists will, and I do hold him to that claim. That claim was a lie, and it was a horrible lie. Um, but his voters look past that to something, a deeper, larger truth. And I, I think we reporters and writers and, and commentators, we, 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 can't, uh, we can't be too high up to ignore the fact that his voters hear something different when he talks in these grandiose and exaggerated ways. You know what I mean? Well, that there's the ultimate kind of ghost story again this week. And I'm sort of wondering how you think this will end up playing out, obviously, in the last seven days is, once again, the emails have risen like a zombie that cannot be <laughs> killed. Um, we don't know what they are. No one knows what they are. But here we go again. Do you, I mean, I, I just have to ask. I feel the absolute need to ask what role you think this might play in the coming week, if any. The emails have the whiff of scandal, right? They have the mm-hmm. smell of scandal or the look of scandal, but we don't actually know if it's a scandal. Uh, so it, it, all it does is it reinforces people's already held views. I, I, I think it's a wash. I, I think Clinton supporters are more fired up and Trump supporters are more fired up. And we head into Election Day um, as a horribly divided country. What I hope is that everyone will accept the outcome, that we can look at the votes with confidence and believe in the outcome and not deny it, as Donald Trump has suggested he might. Well, yes, about that. (laughs) It's called a transition, right? Is this over in a week? I I think for the vast majority of the country, it already is over. And Mm -hmm. and yes, will be over in a week. Gosh, the number of people that come up to me and say, I can't watch anymore. I can't take it anymore. This is this is this didn't happen in 2012. You know, this didn't happen in the past. Uh, what's what's funny about that is the ratings for these cable news channels are incredibly high right now, even though there are so many people who say they can't stand it and can't watch anymore. And we know on all the page view uh, ranker boards that, uh, that, that, that this story is still dominant. But I think the vast majority of the country is ready to move on, can't wait to move on. And then there will be this subset. Uh, if Donald Trump does not win, this subset of people who will uh, hold on to him and believe that Clinton's not legitimately elected. What I hope is that conservative media leaders uh, really do lead uh, rather than mislead their audience about the results. I guess this could be for some people like high school, that there are just those couple people that these are their best days. And the rest of us are <laughs> like, just get us out of here. But those there's a couple of, of, of true believers that are like, no, wow. high school forever, election forever. I had not thought about it that way. I mean, Trump says this thing is rigged against him. He says the media is in on it. The reality is that just from a purely cynical financial point of view, uh, journalists uh, would, would enjoy covering a Donald Trump presidency because it gets oh, back oh, to that God, we used no, earlier. It's no, the no, ultimate no, story. I wasn't even talking about journalists. I'm just talking about the people that I think that there are some people, especially on the kind of Trump side, that are this is a, like a high. You know, there's a real kind of who doesn't want to be in a big cause and a big bat you know it's it's like a it's like a terrible rock show you know it's it's like a band to follow and the show is over um so that's why i'm wondering you know i think that there's a certain amount of like this is what they're it's a it's a it's like a sick hobby and none of us know what to do when it's over we have nothing to fill the hole <laughs> which gets to the idea that for some people it doesn't end right and that and that and yeah that, uh the bright parts of the world um, specifically talking about the conservative media complex, will keep this campaign going, whether it's a campaign for the presidency or a campaign to shut down the government or a campaign for impeachment. Uh, I thought Jeffrey Lord on CNN last week saying that some Republicans will seek to impeach her on day one was A, probably true, and B, a, a real look at where we're going to go next year, like it, like it or not. Um, with that in mind, you know, what can journalists do to help folks understand what's really going on then becomes paramount. Can we, can we gain and regain enough trust to help most readers and viewers understand the political dynamics at play? Uh, I'm not sure that Americans fully understand the Republican resistance to President Obama's administration and what happened in 2009, 2010, et cetera. So I would hope 
uh, trying to be optimistic here that um, that if Trump is elected president, journalists will be clear-minded and clear-viewed about what you know, what what spurred him, what what led him to the presidency, and what his challenges are in Congress. And then if Clinton is elected president. I would hope journalists are clear-eyed about the Republican resistance to her administration and make sure the audience really understands it. Well, uh, there is certainly a lot of questions uh, that will not even come close to being resolved uh, a week from now, but at least will start to to move us through. And um, we will continue to look to to folks like you for for help navigating those questions and 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 coming up with answers for them. So, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you can see Brian every uh, every Sunday on reliable sources as well as on Twitter and uh, throughout a lot of CNN's programming. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, good luck making it through the last the, these last six days. Happy Election Day. All right. That's it for the final pre-election episode of Says Who. We started this podcast as a way of just getting through this election, and oh my god, it might actually be happening. But it is not over yet, so next week on election night, that is Tuesday, the 8th of November, we will be live at 8 p.m. Eastern. We will post a live link on Twitter, so get following us over there. That is at Says Who Podcast. And uh, 8 p.m., we will be there election night. Yeah, this live stream could just be us gibbering away as the results come in. I mean, my dog might bark in the background, or maybe I'll leave the house and I'll go uptown and I'll stand around outside Trump Tower like a ghoul. You know, let's see how this week goes. (laughs) Anything could happen over the next few days. Anything. Anything. I mean, but those events are likely out of the control of anyone listening to this. However, there are many things that are within our control. And the first and most important of these, and I know you hear it all the time, but it really matters, is that you gotta vote. It's true. Everyone needs to go and vote. In every election, not just once every four years, but this year especially, it is not time to play around. This year, everyone does need to get out there and vote and help and work. You know, a personal word to people that are thinking about casting a protest vote. I really get it. I do. I do. I'm not just saying that. I do. In 2000, I ran a magazine called Punk Planet, and we had a cover story that said, you call this a choice, and there was a picture of Gore and Bush, and I personally went out and voted for Nader, and, you know, quite frankly, even this year, I really do wish our choices were better on both sides. I do. But I think about the people that are truly affected by the choice this year. You know, the folks that are going to be thrown out of the country, the people who would be barred from entering, the women and people of color that will just continue to be oppressed and hurt even more than they already are. And for me, as a white dude, there is not any other choice than to get out there and to vote alongside them and to help amplify a choice that is absolutely critical for many. And my conscience demands that though I see, I see the issues you're saying, I have to point out that the she could be better thing does have its roots in misogyny for real. Women are always subjected to a different standard. And it is true that Hillary Clinton has had to pole vault over the moon to get where she is. I do take your point, but there is no such thing as a perfect candidate and asking the first woman running for president, someone so qualified for the job to run against the most violently racist and misogynist candidate and the one who is most profoundly unqualified. It's a daily smack in the face to women, kind of everywhere. Um, But I just had to say that to keep from losing my marbles, if I have any marbles left. Absolutely. Well, I think a lot of people are struggling with a a lot of different things. And one of the things that is, is, 
has been kind of amazing doing this is even though we really don't know what we're doing, people have begun to ask us questions on Twitter and on email. And usually we take those questions and we use them to, 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 to ask uh, the guests that we have on. But there's been one question that we keep coming back to. And with just a week to go, we wanted to address it directly. So, uh, someone named Concerned Teenager asks, I'm 17 and can't vote in this election. Everything that's going on is really freaking me out, and I feel powerless to do anything, especially because I live in a state that's almost certainly going to vote Trump. Do you know of anything I can do other than vote? Signed, a Concerned Teenager. I wanted to answer this one because my primary job, I do have one, is that I am an author. I write for young adults. And in fact, in 2008, I started an organization called YA for Obama, which was to help kids find a role in the election process, give them, you know, things that talk about things that teenagers could do. And uh, first of all, concerned teenager, I want to apologize about the timing in this case, because it must be unbelievably frustrating to watch what's going on this year and be that close to being able to vote and not being able to vote. But there are things that you can do if you're under 18. And it's not too late. You can start doing things now, really. And you can continue to do things. First of all, you can contact the local office of the candidate you support and see if you can volunteer. They need people to do a lot of things. They need people to make calls, to run errands, uh, to do all sorts of tasks, uh, to tweet, for example. These things are all critical to the work of the campaign. You can ask about, you know, driving, helping get people to the polls that need assistance. So that is one whole level, just volunteering of all some stuff you could even do from home. So I'd contact them. This is also really critical. Talk to adults in your life about their voting choices. You know, if you have any, know any people that aren't going to bother to vote or whatever, just really talk to them. You can talk to people in your school about what they're doing. You can get involved with organizations like Emily's List, which helps get pro-choice Democratic women into office if that's something you're interested in, or Rock the Vote. You know, there's a bunch of organizations. I'm going to put links in the show notes. And if you, any, any, this isn't everybody you, have any other ideas about how teens or anyone else can help in the final days of the election, please tweet them to Says Who Podcast, and we'll share them. And let's all never forget what happened this year. You know, it has been it's been a great year for making jokes and uh, for watching how awful things unfold. But let's not do this again. Let's get involved and stay involved. You know, government feels so far removed most of the time. And maybe I just listen to too much Hamilton now, but this whole of, by and for the people thing, I really do want that to be true. You know, if enough people stand up and speak up and join up, the next Trump won't find as much ground to stand on. And our choices in general will get better because they will be choices that include you. Well, Maureen, Maureen, this is it. We are signing off. The next time we'll all be together is live on election night. Again, follow us on Twitter at Says Who Podcast so you will have that live link. And then, well, you know what? Honestly, we are not sure. Uh, both of us have mentioned our real jobs. We have those. Uh, and we still need to do those. We do know that we will be doing at least one last post-election says who. Uh, and then we really, we don't know what comes after. So we're doing a live show. We're doing one more post-election. And then, who knows, maybe there will be more. We don't know what the future brings in politics or in anything, but this has been an amazing ride, that is for sure. And as a coping strategy, it's it's actually turned out pretty great. I also just want to add, there's really no such thing as too much Hamilton. Like, it's it, it's pretty it's pretty great on a daily basis. It does I mean, seem like there is no upper limit to the listens. It, there, there really isn't. Uh, but... That's beside the point. We, No, it's not. It's the entire point. Just listen to a lot of Hamilton. We'll all be okay. We hope you stay with us until the end. Thank you for coming along with us so far. We hope that we've helped you cope in some way. Uh, and we hope we can encourage you, again, to get out there, vote, volunteer, drive someone to the poll, talk those non-voters into going. 
and then, you know, hunker down with your loved ones and your food and bottled water. You know, and, but still, you could be making calls, go door to door. As much as I, we can encourage you right now, we're going to encourage you. This is our shot, and we know never to throw those away because there's no such thing as too much Hamilton. So here we go. Here we go. Thank you to everyone who helped us today. The pilot on today's episode was played by Simon Cole. Simon Cole, you may recognize as the audiobook narrator from an earlier episode. He is a voiceover artist and actor located in London, and he's also a professor of vocal studies at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. You can find out more about Simon at simoncole.co.uk. Our flight attendant was played by Julie Polk. Julie is an actress, storyteller, and voiceover artist from New York. Find out more about Julie at juliepolk.com. And the first class passenger was played by Jason Keeley. Jason is a game designer and improviser from Seattle. And Simon, Julie, and Jason are all friends of mine who did me a solid and uh, appeared in this. And thank you, guys. Love you all. When we started this podcast, I wrote to a musician whose work that I love and asked if we could use something as a theme music. And we have been lucky every week for theme music courtesy of Ted Leo. Ted's November tour starts next week and will be so much fun. So do check out dates near you at tedleotour.tumblr.com. These are the love credits. They are. are very, uh, yeah, I like it. I mean, now let's get to Darth. Darth. Oh, Darth. The best known red panda on the internet. He's one and only. He created our logo. Thank you. That's at Darth on Twitter. So until we're live together on election night from my basement in Chicago, I'm Dan Sinker. And from my closet in New York, I'm Maureen Johnson. Oh, here we, like, it feels very real this time. I mean, it's really happening. This is like Sully. Like, we're really going to land this thing. Stop making comparisons to plane crashes, please. No, that wasn't, it, it was technically an emergency landing. On the Hudson River? Yeah, still a landing. Maureen, the plane sank. Yeah, but everyone made it off alive. I just, I just don't think planes are the mental image we should go out with here. Planes are exactly the mental image we should go out with because they're very safe. I mean, do you know that on average every commercial plane is hit by lightning like once a year? Jesus, Maureen, I fly a lot. Why did you just put that in my head? Because it's awesome. I mean, think about it. It takes a direct hit of lightning and it's fine. That's what this is like. Stop. I'm going to cut off your mic. No, I'm going to sing Free Bird. No, that song is terrible. No, all right. I'm going to call back to an earlier episode. Are you ready? No, I'm not ready. Okay, hold on. It's a world of airplanes, a world of Trump. If you're hit by lightning, you'll hear a thump. There's so much we can do. But that's all from Says Who. Hey. That is, in fact, all from Says Who. I was in the middle of singing a song. We will see all of you live on election night. My mic is off. How did you get to my mic? You can't control my mic. How did you do that? Dan? Dan, turn it back on.